whose love is mighty and so much stronger, the King of glory, the King above all kings, who shakes the whole earth with holy thunder, who leaves us breathless in awe and wonder, the King of glory, the King above all computer has to reboot. You know this part. This is amazing grace. Unfailing love. This is unfailing love. You take my place. That you would take my place. You bear my cross. That you would bear my cross. You lay down your life. You would lay down your life. That I could be set free. That I could be set free. I sing for all that you've done for me. Who brings the chaos into order? Who brings the chaos back into order? Who makes the orphan a son and daughter? The King of glory, the King above all kings. Who rules the nations with truth and justice? Who rules the nations with truth and justice? Shines like the sun in all of his brilliance. The King of glory, the King above all kings. I bet you'll sing it better this time. This is amazing grace. This is Worship him. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Worthy is the King who conquers the grave. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Worthy is the King who conquers the grave. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Worthy is the King who conquers the grave. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Worthy, worthy, worthy. This is amazing grace. This is unfailing love. That you would take my place. That you would bear my cross. You would lay down your life. That I would be. 
bow with me in prayer. Lord God, we uh, sing for all you've done for us because of your great love. How deep, how wide it is, Lord, we give you praise. We can't comprehend it, but we give you praise and we give you glory and honor, uh, Lord, for that great deep, deep abiding love. Lord, uh, we just pray that everybody within the sound of my voice would lift up their voices to worship you in spirit and in truth, those who are born again believers. And Lord, those who don't yet know you, I pray that today in, in faith and in repentance, they would reach out to you and receive this great, great love that you have for them. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, be seated. And uh, uh, hey, thanks for getting that rebooted so quick. I tell you what, at my age, I can't say the words and then sing them. I can only sing. I only got time. I only got enough breath to sing them once. So uh, I was I was worried about doing seven songs that way. Anyway, uh, here is the uh, was that a snide remark from the praise team? Anyway, okay. Uh, anyway, the we have a connection card, and if you would grab one of those and uh, fill that out, we surely would appreciate it. Especially maybe if you're with us here for the first or second time, we'd love to know who you are. The rest of us, uh, there's an opportunity to put a, a prayer request there on the back and uh, turn that in. Everybody, turn that into the uh, offering plate at the end of the service. Well, we're going to be singing about that. This is amazing grace. This is amazing love, and that's what this next song reminds us of. Because he lives. I believe in the sun. I believe in the risen one. I believe I overcome by the power of His love.
Turn 
with me in reading Ephesians 3, 16 through 19 from the New Living Translation. This is Paul's prayer for believers. Let's read together. I pray that from his glorious unlimited resources, he will empower you with inner strength through his spirit. Then Christ will make his home in your hearts as you trust in him. Your roots will grow down into God's love and keep you strong. And may you have the power to understand, as all God's people should, how wide, how long, how high, and how deep His love is. May you experience the love of Christ, though it is too great to understand fully. Then you be made complete with all the fullness of life and power that comes from God. Understand how deep the Father's love. How deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure, that He should give His only Son to make a wretch His treasure. How great the pain of searing to glory Behold the man upon a cross My sin upon his shoulders Ashamed I hear my mocking voice Call out among the scoffers It was my sin that held him there Until
This great song reminds us that we once were lost, but now we're found. We once were blind, but now we see. And best of all, made alive, we once were dead, but now we live. And for that, we spend a lifetime in thanksgiving and praise and honor to our God. Amen. Once was lost, but now I'm found. I once was lost, but now I'm found. So far away, but I'm home now. I once was lost, but now I'm found. And now my life's song was blind, but now I see. I once was blind, but now I see. I don't know how, but when he touched me, I once was blind, but now I see. And now my life's on sea. Make that our prayer one last time. Based on the goodness of God, based on the depth of His love, how am I going to live my life? Hallelujah, hallelujah, let my life song sing to you. song 
praise the Lord, how fitting all the songs are that were selected in light of the passage that is before us. Stuart Townsend wrote, How Deep the Father's Love Is for Us. He also wrote, uh, oh, brain freeze, In Christ Alone, right? And what an awesome song that is. But his songs make you think. They're thought-provoking. They're theologically strong. And so, also thinking of how deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure that He should give His only Son, check this out, to make a wretch His treasure. One thing we've learned in Ephesians 1 is that when God saved you, He saved you as unto Him as His inheritance. You actually belong to Him and He has redeemed us and adopted us into his family, which I believe is the height of God's love to humanity. In other words, it's called redeeming love. The redeeming love to save sinners. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 leaves no stone unturned when it comes to our condition before God. We are helpless, we are rebellious, and we are condemned. Before God. That's what Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 says. Now, the world, the media, may tell you that humanity has another problem. And that problem is the way you were raised by your parents or your environment. And I know all those things can certainly affect you. But the reality is there's something wrong with the heart. The real problem is the problem of the heart. That's the real problem. The heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. So to understand what a great contrast it is to be dead and then made alive, we have these two incredible one-syllable words, but God. And we learned last week the antithesis is so incredible. Children of wrath, like the rest of mankind, but God. What is it that caused our salvation? What is it when we look into the heart of God? Well, it's first rich mercy. And we looked last week and unpacked those Old Testament terms, two of them that describe the love of God. One has to do certainly with pity to our need, helpless, right, dead in trespasses. The other, however, has to do with covenant faithfulness and loyalty. And it's that Hebrew word, you learned it last week with a guttural sound, kesed, right? It is that compassionate love of God. So those two terms come over to the New Testament and make the word mercy. And we learned last week in Psalm 136 that we are to praise God for his loving kindness. But when you get to Romans 9, 15 to 16, this is how it is described by Paul. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Listen to the New Living Translation. So receiving God's promise is not up to us. We can't get, get it by choosing it or working hard for it. God will show mercy to anyone he chooses. So we learn that mercy is an expression of God's goodness. And it's always unmerited. And it is also mutually exclusive when it comes to meriting it. When you got married, something became mutually exclusive. You were no longer single. Right? When you get married, you're no longer single. And if you try to remain single, something's not going to go right. Amen? Well, 
merit and mercy are mutually exclusive. In other words, mercy never responds to merit. It's not anything in us where we actually merit the goodness and mercy of God. The good news is that no sinner is beyond the reach of God's great mercy. It can reach anybody, anywhere, at any time. Here is a wonderful gospel truth. God himself delights in showing mercy. Now, as we started studying Ephesians 2, we began to unpack it, and we learned that there's one subject, God, and one verb, made alive, or to make alive. There's been a lot of filler in there in these sermons for us to understand what that looks like. First three verses, first three sentences have nothing to, are not the subject. The subject doesn't come to verse 4. And the main verb does not come to verse 5. So God made us alive. But in the meantime, we had to think about our condition before God so that we actually look at God the right way. Correct? And then we started unpacking God made us alive. And we had to look at the God who made us alive. And what does he look like? He's rich in mercy. But that's not all. He has great love toward us with a great love. And that's what we're going to see today. So last week it was his rich mercy. This week it is his great love in which he loved us. And then next week the goal will be to talk about God made us alive by grace. He enthroned us with Christ by grace. And we are God's grace on display. This is where we're tracking. So in your bulletin, God made us alive with Christ. You just got one thing to think about today, the awesome love of God. Can you wrap your mind around that? After David had us read Ephesians 3, how wide, how deep, how wonderful, how, just, just the expanse and the thinking of the love of God. So in this passage of Scripture, listen to the reading, beginning in verse 4 of chapter 2 of the book of Ephesians. But God, being rich in mercy, because of, parallel, the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespass and sin. It's almost like Paul says, hey, don't forget. We're looking at the great love of God, but don't forget your condition, your dreadful condition. Before you were a recipient of the mercy and love, you were dead in our trespasses. And he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. So, love here is given, one word, love. It's given as a noun with an adjective, great love. And then it's given again as a verb, love, agape. Now, there's verb endings to that. Only Luke Mendenhall would appreciate that this morning, right? Because he studies Greek and in school. Some of you may not. So I'm not going to give you the verb endings, okay? But it's important to think. They are important, very important the way you read it grammatically. But just underscore this. Paul is emphatically putting the spotlight on it by saying great love and then turning around and saying with which he loved us. It is God's love for his people. Check this out. There's been an in Christ formula all the way beginning in chapter 1. In Christ, in Christ, in him, with him, through him, to him. And then all of a sudden, you're not made alive unless it's in Christ. The mercy he's given you, rich mercy, is in Christ. The love with which he hath loved you is in Christ. Now, is it safe to say that the love of God is grossly misunderstood in our world? I don't say yes too, too strongly until you hear the sermon. 
Because then you're thinking, wow, wait a minute now. I meant something different when I said it's grossly misunderstood, but we know that it is. Don Carson once wrote a book called The Difficult Doctrine of the Love of God. Does that hit you strange? Because we think and should think, well, love's just simple. It's just simple. However, D.A. Carson wrote that book, The Difficult Doctrine of the Love of God. Well, we, we think, well, maybe the difficult doctrine of election, maybe the difficult doctrine of predestination. But why would he be writing a, difficult, a book on the difficult doctrine of love? You know why? Because when you read the Bible about love, it's difficult. It's not easy to translate and put it all together. Here's what Don Carson says. Nowadays, if you tell people that God loves them, they are unlikely to be surprised. Of course, God loves me. He is like that, isn't he? Besides, why shouldn't he love me? I'm kind of cute. Or at least, I'm as nice as the person next door. So I'm okay, you're okay, God loves you, and God loves me. Sadly, folks, that is the extent of the way that most people, even church people at times, view the love of God. There's some common misunderstandings that exist about the love of God. Can I give you some of them? Here's the first one. God loves people more than anything. Wrong. If you've learned anything in this church, I hope you've learned over the last five years that God loves himself and his own glory more than anything. I hope you all understand that God existed in perfect harmony. He is self-sufficient for all eternity as God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. You do understand he didn't create you because he needed you. He created you so that you would bring him more glory. So God is most committed to God. He loves himself. You say, well, that's, no, that's not fair. He's a glory hound. You're right. He's God. Let's get this straight. We are not, and he is. So, not only is that true, or the fact that it's wrong to say that God loves people more than anything. He loves himself. He loves his glory more than anything. Here's another common misconception. God loves all people in the same degree. That's not taught in the Bible. As a matter of fact, it's the, the opposite is taught in the Bible. It's also believed that God's love is always unconditional. That's another misconception. Another one is God's love is always indiscriminate. That's not true either. So people's definition of the love of God makes God's love indiscriminate. You know why? Because God can't discriminate because our federal government says he can't. Right? And God's love is always sentimental. And in the South, we call that sloppy agape. Right? It's always sentimental. Right? And then finally, God's love to most people is ineffectual. What does that mean? Well, God loves me sentimentally, but he doesn't love me enough to change me. Folks. Redeeming love is not redeeming love if you're not changed. So there's no way that we can say that God's love is always the same in all degrees. It's not. It's just clearly not in the Word of God. So this means the world views, uh, the, the view of the love of God means that He loves you just enough to leave you how you are. So these three ideas make us feel warm inside. Unconditional love, right, indiscriminate, and universal. Everybody feels warm and fuzzy about that. But here's the deal. 
is that the kind of love the Bible teaches about God? And is that what it means more particularly in Ephesians 2 verse 4? Is that what that actually means? So if you're wondering if I'm trying to create a problem in your mind, you're right. I am. Why? Because of Don Carson's book, yes, the doctrine of love is difficult. But I'm telling you, folks, the the doctrine of love is not as simple as we make it out to be. Not if you read your Bible. Okay? Let me give you a couple of verses to think about. We like this one. Certainly this says God is, his love is unconditional, and it's indiscriminate, and it's universal. Here's the verse. God is love. I like that one. It's found within the body of 1 John 4, 7. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is of God, and everyone that loves is born of God. And he that does not love does not know God, for God is love. You get on down to verse 16, and in the center of it, actually 1 John 4, 16, we might say B, is God is love. However, listen to the difference in Deuteronomy 7. The Lord says, It was not because you were more in number than any of the people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples, but it was because the Lord loves you. Wow, wait a minute now. Here's an isolated, discriminate love for the Israelites above all other people. Y'all see that? No way that you can make this unclear. It is absolutely conditioned in that verse. Think about this one. Jesus said to the rich young ruler, Looking at him, Jesus loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. That kind of love that Jesus had for someone who even never turned, as far as we know, to the Lord. And yet he loved him. How about this one? For God loved the world in this way. That he gave his only one unique son. That whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. However, listen to this. John 14, 21, Jesus says, Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. Oh, wait a minute. He who loves me will be loved by my Father. That's a condition, right? And I will love him and manifest myself to him. We've got to all agree that that sounds much different than Romans 5, 8. God demonstrated his love. Listen to this one. John 14, 23 says, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. Oh, I'm really meddling now, right? And my Father will love him. This is conditional. Jesus' love toward us, you obeying his commandments, conditions whether the Father loves you. That's conditional. No matter how you slice it or dice it. And we will come to him and we'll make our home with him. Listen to John 15, 10. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Wait a minute. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Clearly conditional. This is certainly different than we love Him because He first loved us. How about this one? But you, O beloved, building building yourself up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourself in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Jude 20 and 21. How does that relate to John 3.16? There's clearly a difference, right? Now, listen to this. Psalm 86, verse 5. For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. 
Is there a condition? What's the, what's the condition? Abounding in steadfast love to those who... Okay, here's another one. Psalm 103. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows chesed, compassion, covenant love to those who fear him. So as we honestly look at these texts of Scripture, I hope you can see that we have a problem. Some of these passages very, are very unconditional, very universal, and others are undeniably particular, and they're undeniably conditional. Some sound very particular in scope, and some sound completely universal. What do we do? Yeah. Well, we could easily say, for grammarians, people who study the Greek language, y'all know the Bible was written in Greek, right? I, I, I recall the story of a seminary professor who was up in the, the he was laboring in the class, and uh, he was describing Greek words, and people were getting bored out of their minds. Why would you ever describe a Greek word? And, and in particular, there was a young lady on the front row, and she was agitated, moving around. She just did not want to hear what the professor had to say. And he picked up on it, and he said, Ma'am, in middle class, can I help you? What's wrong with you? Do I need to assist you? She says, Well, professor, I just don't see why you would spend that amount of time laboring on that kind of word. She said, I don't understand, because when I read the Bible, God just speaks to me, straight to me, and I just do what he says do, and, and I'm done with it. He says, okay. He takes his Greek New Testament over there and gives it to her. And he says, ma'am, I want you to read this verse in the Greek. She says, well, I can't read Greek. And he says this. Well, if God will bypass you and give you direct revelation over the English, then he ought to bypass you as you read the Greek and tell you what it says. Do y'all know how important it is to have a Bible written in Greek? Right? That's why we instruct you. That's why we learn the Bible. Okay, all that for this. We say, well, agape. That's the answer. Right? Because how many times have you been told that agape means the God kind of love that is always unconditional? As a matter of fact, it's so unconditional that it really doesn't have much feeling to it at all. It's just a generic love of God. Well, number one, that's wrong. It's not always used in the Bible as unconditional love of God or the God type of love. Can I give you an example? How many of you have ever read the story of Amnon and Tamar? Sordid story. Grips you in your throat. Both were sons, grandsons of, granddaughter, grandson of David. Tamar was Amnon's half-sister. The Bible says that he looked upon Tamar and loved her. Transliterated, agape. He loved Tamar. Y'all know the end of the story? Did I have to tell you? That he actually raped his half-sister. And then here's what the Bible says. Then Amnon hated her with a very great hatred, so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the agape with which he had loved her. Wow. We're not going to solve this dilemma based on the word agape. Hope y'all get this, right? Here's another one, 2 Timothy 4.10. For Demas, in his agape for the world, has deserted me. Wow. That's certainly not a God type of love if you're going to desert Paul and go to the world. How about this? Do not love agape, the world, nor the things in this world. For whoever agapes loves this world... The love, agape, of the Father is not in him. 
So, in other words, folks, words mean something, and they're funny. Context drives the meaning. I'm going to show you one in just a few moments that that's happened. But let's just draw this to, down to nitty-gritty. Question. Did Jesus love Peter in the same way that he loved Judas? All I can say to that is we better hope not. Did God love the Israelites in the same way that he loved the Canaanites? Did God love Esau the same way that he loved Jacob? Clearly, the Bible says in Romans 9, 13, as it is written, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. Some of you are saying, well, that's just in degree. Exactly. If he hated, there's no question that hate either and the real meaning is a solemn disliking to the person. That's the real meaning, okay? But if you want to argue and say it doesn't mean that, there still has to be a degree of love between loving Esau and loving Jacob. There clearly has to be a difference, or Paul would have never given the terminology. And here's the deal. Some of you are saying, Pastor, why are you trying to take all the warm fuzzies out of my bumper sticker theology? Because I want you to think deeply about the love of God that you've been a recipient of. If you're saved today, why do you think Paul says rich mercy and then parallels it with great love? Because he wants you to know the depths of the love of God for sinners. He wants you to know, folks, there is a difference. Sometimes we need to read dead theologians more than we read alive theologians. I'm just telling you, I get a lot from dead people. From what they have written. You know why? Because they actually read the Bible. And they struggle with things like love. And they said, Lord, how is it that you can say this on one end and the other end you say something totally different? Well, or seemingly different. The older theologians talked about the, the degrees of the same love of God. And I want to talk to you about those three. You ready? First is the love of benevolence. The love of benevolence is the quality of good will toward others. The New Testament is replete with references of God's good will to all humanity, even in our fallenness. This love of benevolence or good will extends to all people without distinction. Therefore, it is universal. It is unconditional. God is loving in, the sense, in this sense even to those who are damned. Now, we can't grasp that because we're not God. But He is totally just. In other words, He has no malice. He has no impurity, no maliciousness in his actions. He does not delight in the death of the wicked, Ezekiel 33. His judgments upon evil are rooted in his righteousness, not in some distorted malice in his character. Like an earthly judge should weep when he sends the guilty to punishment, God rejoices in his justness, but he does not find joy in those who are damned. He is benevolent. This love of benevolence or goodwill extends to all people without distinction. God is loving in that sense. He is a benevolent God over all of his creation. Amen? He is. Here's the second one. It's called the love of beneficence. Bene, right? Goodwill to someone. Well, it sounds like benevolence, but here's the difference. You can have a disposition of benevolence to a world but never have, a, never have an action to love the world. Does that make sense? It does. It makes plenty of sense. You can be benevolent, but never have anyone benefit from your benevolence. 
And so this is vitally important. I may feel well disposed towards somebody, but my goodwill remains unknown unless I manifest that goodwill in some kind of action. We often associate that with kindness. Here's the deal. Check this out. Where does the word charity come from? It's a synonym of love. So God not only is benevolent to the world, but he actually reaches out. And he actually does things for the world. Let me give you an example. Jesus emphasized this aspect of God's love when he taught about the benefit of God's providence. Here's what he said. You have heard it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. And pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. Anybody have a problem loving your enemies? Right? For he makes, listen to this, he makes his son rise on evil and on the good. And he sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Matthew 5, 43. So in this passage, Jesus brings together benevolence and beneficence. So, and here's the thing about this love. Is it the warm fuzzies? Are you supposed to go out and love your enemy like a warm fuzzy feeling? No, as a matter of fact, you love your enemy because you belong to God and you're like your father, so you love the enemy. Amen? That's why you move that way. That's how, why you have the verb. So love, in this sense, is more of an action than a noun. To love your enemies is to be loving toward them. It involves doing good to them. All right? So that's a reflection of God's love toward his enemies when we do this. To those who hate and curse him, he shows the love of beneficence. God's benevolence, his goodwill, it's demonstrated in his actions toward all people. Why? Because his son and his reign are equally given to good people and evil people. That's clearly what the Bible says. They extend to all of humanity. And there's one more. Again, Puritans, Jonathan Edwards, theologians before us. This was the three degrees. And I'll challenge you to read any text in the Bible regarding the love of God and check it out and see if they don't all fit in those three definitions or degrees. And the other one is the love of complacency. Now, what do we think complacent means today? Smugness. I've achieved something, so I'm going to sit on my laurels. That's not always what that word meant. Thus, time changes things. Actually, in the Oxford Dictionary, it means the fact or state of being pleased with a thing or a person. Tranquil pleasure or satisfaction in something or someone. So in that regard, it is different from benevolence in the heart of God and beneficence. It is actually this. God loved you in such a way that he was pleased to save you and he finds his ultimate delight in his son and in his people. That's what it means. Why? Because who does God love more than anyone? His beloved son. And folks, when you find yourself in the orbit of the love of the Savior, God pours his love out on his son, and we get the benefit of that poured out love because you are in Christ. That's great love. I know your mind is kind of fried at this point, but you guys went to school, and you're learning way more than I've ever learned. You learn chemistry and physics and being a doctor and a dentist. Don't tell me you can't learn the Word of God. Well, these terms are foreign, Pastor. Well, your terms are foreign to me. <laughs> Amen? But it does us good 
to look at the Word of God. Check this out. It is Christ who is beloved of the Father supremely. Remember, God the Father says, He is my Son in whom I am well pleased. And then by adoption in Christ, every believer shares in that divine love of complacency. Jonathan Edwards called it the sweet complacency of God. Where you are His and you are His pleasure. Not because of anything in you inherently good or lovely or delightful, but because Jesus, because the Father loved the Son and you are in the Son, you are, the, the love of God is poured out on you. Mm. So, let me sum up the mental exercise with something easier. J.I. Packer encapsulates it well by saying, God loves all men in some ways and some men in all ways. Let that sink into your mind. We can tell a sinner that God loves them. We can tell a sinner that God desires their good for them without their least, a least bit compromising this love of God that gives forgiveness and redeems you like I've just talked about. Why? Because our God's common grace is over all people unconditionally. Our God's common grace is over all people universally. So we can gloriously affirm that God is love and he loves all men in some way. Listen to Ezekiel 33. Ezekiel 33, verse 10. Here's what the Bible says. And you, son of man, say to the house of Israel, Thus you have said, Surely our transgressions and our sins are upon us, and we rot away because of them. How then can we live? Is that not a good question? Say to them, As I live, declares the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. For why will you die, O house of Israel? Turn and live is the word of the living God. So our God loves all of his creatures in such a way that he earnestly desires their repentance. God loves all men in some ways, but folks, most gloriously, he loves some men in all ways. Why? Because that love began before the foundation of the world. Clearly taught in Ephesians 1. He chose you in him when? Before the foundation of the world. He predestined you in love. That is the straight teaching of the word of God. So this affection that God had for you and bringing you into himself did not begin in our time and space. It began outside of time and outside of space. That's love, folks, the love of God. Now, does it bother you like it does me when God says, Esau hath I hated and Jacob I loved? Does that bother y'all? Well, it bothers me until I think about this. It's not the amazing thing to me that God hated Esau. The amazing thing is that God loved Jacob. So don't, don't marvel at Esau have I hated Marvel at Jacob have I loved. As a matter of fact, last time I checked it out, I would have rather had Esau as my neighbor than Jacob. I mean, Esau was a bubba. As a matter of fact, we could have probably gone turkey hunting together, right? And killed a deer and made some soup. Yeah, I get all that. But look, we need to marvel at the fact that God loved a back-of-the-hill kind of guy. That's his name, Jacob, a grabber. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Yet God loved Jacob. Now, why should he love me? Why should he love you at all? I hope you understand that's the point of Ephesians 1 and 2. Why should God have rich mercy toward me? 
Why should God have great love toward me? Last time I checked, folks, God did not save you because you were attractive. It's clearly taught in the Word. God did not save you because of anything in you. God saved you because of it is His nature to love. And that's what's in the heart of God. Here's the clear teaching of God's Word. God set His affection on you before the foundation of the world, not because you were wiser, not because you were better, not because you were stronger than all the others, but that Almighty God, because of grace, chose to love you. And not only did God say, I loved you, but He brought you into Himself, made you His, then He transformed your life, and then He says, nothing can separate you from my love. Hallelujah. Do you understand that true love doesn't leave you where you are? And I know in America, love means don't tell people the truth. But that's not love at all. As a matter of fact, redeeming love does not leave you where you are. It is very effectual. It's not ineffectual. The true love of God reaching out to sinners does not leave you where you were. It's the love of God that actually changes us. Now, Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, let's ask the question, does God love? Have you checked out your pedigree? Helpless. Rebellious. And check this other one out. And by nature, children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. So, they're in juxtaposition. Well, no, they're contrast together. Well, comparatively speaking, let's get it straight. Rich mercy, great love. Are y'all listening? Rich mercy, great love. In other words, in that his... Mercy is rich. His love is also limitless and inexhaustible. It is abounding. But let's, let's focus on this at the very end of the sermon. Verse 3. We're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And then put it beside this. In his great love, he loved us. Okay, got it? By nature, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That's your, that's your dreadful condition. Yet, great love in which he Loved us. Now, here's the question. How can a perfect, holy, just, righteous God who has wrath against all lost sinners, not some, all. We all were by nature children of wrath. How can that kind of God love us? I think this is the most important question in all of God's great universe. How can a perfectly holy God love lost sinners? Separated from him and under his wrath. Has anybody ever wrestled with that like me? Any of you folks in the balcony ever wrestle with that? How can God love me when I'm under wrath? How can he remain both just and holy and righteous and still love me? How is it even possible? When I read Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, here's what I say. I'm done. I'm condemned. And justly so. I deserve the fierce wrath of Almighty God based upon my condition before him. That should be our response. I deserve the fierce wrath of God. But here it is. Do you want to see the wrath of God, church family? You've already seen it if you're saved. It's called the cross. Do you want to see the wrath of God? If you do, you have to look at the cross. Do you want to see the love of God? Ultimate love of God? The epitome of the love of God? You have to look at the cross. Okay, you want to bring it all together? One verse. In this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation 
for our sins. That's love. That's redeeming love. Is that strange language to you? It is to me. Love and propitiation in the same verse. What does propitiation assume? Say it. Wrath. Propitiation. What does it mean? It means to turn back wrath off from one to another. It means to take wrath away. What does Ephesians 2 say? You are under the wrath of God. How can that wrath be removed? The only way is by propitiation. If you want to see the wrath and love of God brought together, folks, you've got to look at the old Roman rugged cross. What happened there? Propitiation happened there. The wrath of God was appeased and it was turned away. And I and you are children of wrath before Christ. This is what we deserve by nature. Folks, here is the perfect, righteous, just God with all, with the whole of heaven filling up with wrath. And it's billowing out, according to Romans 2, as we sin more and more because our hearts are hard and impotent in our heart and we're storing up wrath for the day of judgment, Romans 6, 3. Wrath is compounding every single day. Then in the fullness of time, the absolute perfect Son of God, the sinless Son of God, in a divine act of substitution, poured out on His perfect, righteous Son all of the wrath that you and I deserved. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. All the wrath that you and I deserve out of Ephesians 2, God poured out on the perfect Son of God. Herein is love. Not that we loved Him, but that God loved us and gave His Son as a propitiation for our sins. Thus, He pours it out on His perfect Son, and it turns that wrath away. And instead of God condemning me, He embraces me with love. Instead of the condemnation that we all deserve, God in turn through His great love in which He loved us actually doesn't condemn us, but embraces us. Do you want to see the wrath of God and the love of God? Look at the cross. Folks, please see the consideration of your plight. Why would God act on your behalf? You know how many songs have been written about that? Good, solid theological songs. How deep the Father's love for us. To contemplate why God would act on our behalf. Here's the news, folks. You, if you're saved, are loved particularly and conditionally. And you are loved unconditionally and conditionally. What kind of love is this? It's amazing love. It is God glorifying love. It is God honoring love. It is redeeming love that really redeems. And we talk about redemption, but are you redeemed? Did it really do what God called it to do? Is that not a good question? We're talking about redeeming love that actually redeems. We're talking about a love that actually rescues us. And he actually rescues you from your own will. Because you're dead. You're doomed. You're disobedient. And you're condemned. So, what kind of love would this be for God to leave the eternal destiny of fallen, dead, and corrupt man in his own hands? Is that love? To leave it in your own hands? God says, well, here's my love for you. I'm going to stand back. Just go ahead and make your choice. You would not respond to him in a million years. Because you are dead. You are helpless. You are rebellious. 
and you're condemned. Last time I checked, the dead man can't make a decision. God has to regenerate dead people. Where does this tie to? It ties to the glorious resurrection where he raises you from the dead and makes you alive. Here's the deal. Our only hope in our dreadful condition is the rich mercy and great love of God. Rich mercy and great love. Are you in Christ today? Have you been loved with an everlasting love? Have you obeyed the gospel? Think with me. Invitation. We're about to wind it down. I get it. Have you obeyed the gospel? You say, well, that's up to me. Well, no. God actually commands that you obey the gospel. He actually demands today that before his great love, you actually repent. You understand he demands that. But I'm telling you, folks, God actually gives you what he commands and what he demands. That's real redeeming love. So on the basis of the goodness and common grace to all men that God Almighty has, I can forthrightly offer you the gospel because God does love mankind. I can turn around and say with all the vigor I have in my life that God's common grace extends to all, his love extends to all, and you can be saved today. You can be gloriously saved. Sinners of all stripes and all degrees and all ages can find a river of pardon and forgiveness through the blood of the Son of God. So if you're lost today, we offer you to the Lord Jesus Christ who is rich in mercy and wonderfully great in his love for sinners. Some of you swear that your pastor is schizophrenic because you're saying, how can God love unconditionally, conditionally, discriminately, and indiscriminately? Folks, I don't know, but I know what this book says. And you hired me to preach this book. You want me to give you the Reader Digest? Folks, it so happens that when you exposit the Word of God as it is written, it, un- it overturns some rocks that you're not real comfortable looking under. But I'm telling you, folks, this is the Word of the living God. And we want to know what this book says. And it's very important that you know what this book says about the love of God because it is the most important thing you will ever think about in your life. So, I'm not schizophrenic. I can talk about election. I can talk about discriminant love. I can talk about conditional love. I can talk about all these things. And then I can tell you Jesus says repent and believe. You know why? Because this book does that. And I don't feel any remorse whatsoever because I'm going to stand before a just and holy God who's told me to preach the word in season and out of season. Preach the word. So here's the deal. Because I believe the Bible, I'm going to preach it the way it's written. And here's what I want you to know. Here's what you need to know. Not speculation, not philosophy, not theological circles. Here's what you need to know. You are a sinner, and you must repent, and you must trust Christ, and you must believe the gospel in order to be saved. That's what this book says. So are you a recipient of the love of God? Love excelling. What's that, What's that hymn, David? Uh Love divine, all love excelling. Uh, It is. The love of God. How deep, how wonderful is the love of God that would reach down and save sinners like us. Do you know the Lord today? Are you saved? I can tell you this, there's no other way to heaven except through the Son. You've got to be saved through rich mercy and great love. That's the call. Trust Christ today. And Jesus, 
who is God, has a right, has a right to demand that repentance and command that repentance from you. That's what the Bible says. Let's stand in response to the preaching of the word and let's sing a, a song that will remind you of God bearing your wrath and showing his love to you. Behold the man upon the cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed I hear my mocking voice fall out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. I will not boast in anything. No gifts, no power, no wisdom. But I will boast in Jesus Christ, His death and resurrection. Why should I gain from His reward? I cannot give an answer, but this I know with all my heart. His wounds have paid my ransom, but this I know with all my heart. His wounds have paid my ransom. Well, I tried out the three loves in degrees to several people. I uh, tried it with my boys and asked different people, and I got them funny looks. And then Timothy's like, you need to put that on the PowerPoint so help people see the definitions. Folks, I do want you to understand, but some things you just can't dumb down too far. You just can't, okay? So I hope that'll help you. And in the future, we may stick some of those things up there to help you think about terminology and stuff like that. But I was sharing aspects of this with my barber. I love the guy. His name's Chris. Now, I better not say that part of it, but um, he's a little raw. I'd love for him to come give a testimony, but I had to tell him, don't use a cuss word while you're talking, right? He's a little raw, okay? But we talked about love like that, and he said to me at one point, you know, I grew up Catholic, I was an atheist, but all of a sudden, one day, hearing the Word of God, I realized that it wasn't something that I accomplished on my own, that it was grace and it was love. And as I explained these terms to him, he said, Yes! That's what salvation is. Yes, it's the love of complacency where God finds pleasure in saving people. And I'm just so glad that it reached me. I didn't deserve it. And I hope that's your testimony. I hope you're not smug about this. No, you need to understand you are a wretch and God made you his treasure. To God be the glory. The Whited family, Don and Jeannie, step up here. Come on. No. Uh, they've been visiting for quite some time and they come to us. From a sister Southern Baptist Church, they want to unite with church membership at FBCO, and they, they, they will take part in the new members class. So welcome them to our church family. Amen? Amen. It, was, it was interesting that in both the conversations with Don and Jeannie and Max, come on up here, Max. This is Max Meek. In our conversation with both of them, we ended up talking about music and hymns of the faith. This guy talked about singing with his family uh, haven of rest. Boy, that'll preach. I've anchored my soul in the haven of rest. 
Come to the Savior who patiently waits. Good stuff. We had a good time talking about music. But Max comes to us also from a sister Southern Baptist Church. Cassville. And uh, y'all remember Max. He was here before. The Lord's brought him back home. And uh, he's working over in Sparta. Lives there. And uh, wants to join back with our church family. And he too will take part in the new members class. So just welcome our newest members to the church family. Amen. All right. Y'all know Jeremy back there. He seats everybody. If y'all go back there toward Jeremy, he'll let people greet you as they go out. All right? Hey, one quick thing. Y'all go ahead. One quick thing before we leave. Uh, everybody knows we've been struggling with decision-making in regard to these buildings. We're dealing with 30-year-old buildings that got flooded. And we need wisdom from God to know what to do. This has been the greatest struggle I've ever had as a pastor in trying to get the word from the Lord and direction from people. Maybe it's because I had 20 deacons in my former church and their wives. And I had six trustees that were really elders. And so when you came on a church floor with 60 people all in one accord, you can make a decision. I don't have that here. I just don't. So it's hard, okay? So Wednesday night, we're going to reboot a little bit, give some more information to you. We need your help, okay? That means you come to church on Wednesday night, right? And we've got it designed where we've got nursery care. The youth will be coming in here probably. The children will be meeting away. Parents, you can come in here at 630 and help us. It's your church, right? We need help to know and discern the will of God on which way we should go in the future. Amen? All right. God bless each one of you. David? As we go, let's sing. Oh, please. Yes. Judy, sorry. Judy Morissette died this morning around 630. So uh, that funeral will be here next Sunday, and Mary's meeting with them today. Sometime, probably after lunchtime, will be that funeral for Miss Judy. So pray for Carrie Beth and the rest of the family. All right, God bless you. Yes, amen. This is Amazing Grace. Let's sing it. This is Amazing Grace. This is unfailing love that you would take my Have a great day.